Section 8 of the South American Republics, Volume 2, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 2, Chile. Chapter 1, The Spanish Conquest. About a century before Pizarro landed, Tupac Yupanqui, the greatest of all Inca conquerors, crossed the rough mountains, bleak plateaus, and waterless deserts which lie between the habitable part of Bolivia and the irrigable valleys of northern Chile, and rapidly overran the coast for six hundred miles. As one goes south, the plain broadens, the short rivers flowing from the mountains grow larger, the rainfall and the area available for cultivation increase, and from Santiago, a wide valley, the heart of Chile, stretches between the Andes and the coast range, sustaining a dense population. As far south as the river Maule, the limit of Tupac's conquests, irrigation is necessary for crops. In all these valleys dwelled various tribes, whose system of agriculture and civilization was similar to that of the Incas. Only the southern peoples inhabiting the rainy and forested regions beyond the Maule refused to submit. Huayna Capac, Tupac's son, was once obliged to undertake a campaign to consolidate the Inca power, but Chile north of the Maule became thoroughly attached to the Cuzco dynasty. Little resistance was encountered when Almagro invaded this country just after Pizarro's entry into the Peruvian capital. He advanced as far as the Maule, finding everywhere a population probably as dense as that of the present day. Agriculture was highly developed. The people were clothed in substantial stuffs of their own manufacture. They mined copper, tin, and lead and possessed excellent arms and tools. The tribes all spoke the same language, but each enjoyed a degree of autonomy under its own chiefs. Their habits were democratic. They loved freedom and independence. The Inca socialistic system did not prevail, and each farmer owned his own field and could transmit it to his children. The race was large and vigorous, the selected survivors from among immigrants, who had been greatly improved by countless generations of struggle in the more rigorous climates. As one approached the cold and rainy mountains of southern Chile, their characteristics became more pronounced, and south of the Maule, warlike, half-savage tribes proudly maintained their independence. Almagro's sole preoccupation was gold, but he vainly searched the valleys as far as the southern boundary of the Inca Empire. Here he encountered serious resistance from the independent tribes, and though victorious in his fights, concluded that it was not worth while remaining in such a cold and goldless country. He abandoned Chile and returned to Peru, there to meet his death at Pizarro's hands. Pizarro soon took measures to extend the Spanish conquest to all parts of the Inca Empire, and for Chile he selected his quartermaster, Pedro de Valdivia, an active and experienced soldier. Late in 1540, the summer season in those latitudes, Valdivia, with 200 Spaniards and a large number of Indian auxiliaries, crossed the Andes and arrived at Copiapo, the northernmost inhabited valley. Like Almagro, he met no opposition as he pushed his way south for 450 miles. Arriving at the great valley of Chile, in that favored region he founded the city of Santiago, which has ever since remained the capital and most important place in the country. The people of the neighborhood attacked the settlement and burned half the houses, 
but they were soon decisively defeated. Nevertheless, the invaders' position was critical. Many of them wished to return. A mutiny was on the point of breaking out, but at this juncture the fortunate discovery of valuable gold mines near Santiago hushed all talk of abandoning the country. Firmly established at Santiago, Valdivia next turned his attention to the northern provinces and founded a city at Coquimbo, about 250 miles north of the capital, which became the centre of Spanish power in that region. In 1545 he advanced into the country south of Santiago, where the Promaukians welcomed him as an ally against their hereditary foes, the Araucanians, a fierce and powerful confederacy dwelling beyond the river Biobio, which flows into the Pacific in latitude 37 degrees. By the following year Spanish influence was dominant north of that river. Valdivia, with many of his men, temporarily returned to Peru to aid in the suppression of Gonzalo's revolt, but as soon as civil war was over, he came back to Chile with his title of governor confirmed by viceregal authority. He had found Lima swarming with hungry adventurers, who eagerly followed him, hoping for grants of land and Indian slaves, or to make their fortunes in mining. With their help, the conquest and settlement of all Chile as far south as the Maule was effectually completed. The land was apportioned among the cavaliers each becoming a sort of feudal baron, and in effect creating a landed aristocracy which has continued to rule the country to the present day. The process of incorporation did not stop at the Maule, but included the Promaukians and most of the other tribes between that river and the Biobio. Beyond the latter stretched the Araucanian territory for two hundred miles, and Valdivia now undertook the conquest of the southern forests where the Inca arms had never been able to penetrate. His first step was to found Concepcion, near the mouth of the Biobio. The neighboring territory belonged to allies of the Confederacy, and the Araucanians felt great alarm at such an aggression. The Grand Council was summoned, composed of the head chiefs of the four nations, and the chiefs, called Ulmens, of the provinces and tribes into which these nations were divided and subdivided. In accordance with immemorial custom, the deliberations lasted three days, and the humblest warrior was permitted to give his opinion before war was voted. Once the determination reached, and a general, or toki, elected, each soldier put on his leather cuirass, picked up his heavy war-club, and four thousand strong, the tribesmen sallied forth to attack the Spaniards. Musketry volley and cavalry charge compelled the Araucanians to retreat, after a hotly contested combat which lasted several hours. These Indians, strong and sturdy dwellers in an invigorating climate, were more formidable foes than the Spaniards had yet encountered in South America. Though amazed at the deadly effect of the strange weapons which the invaders used, they were not demoralized. Like the Saracens, they believed that death in battle was a passport to paradise. War was their principal business, and the young were trained up to the trade of arms. At close quarters they were almost irresistible. Their clubs and spears, wielded with reckless bravery, matched the swords of the Spaniards and as soon as they learned how to take advantage of cover in approaching an enemy provided with firearms, the result of a battle between them and the Castilians became doubtful. During the year 1551, 
Valdivia occupied himself in fortifying Concepcion and making preparations for an invasion of Araucania. Heavy reinforcements came, and he advanced encountering at first no serious opposition. He founded the city of Imperial, 150 miles south of Concepcion, and thence pushed a hundred miles farther on, where he established a seaport, calling it by his own name. Returning north in 1553, on his way he built several forts in the Araucanian territory, and at Santiago found a fresh body of troops and, what was even more important, a supply of horses. Two hundred men were dispatched across the Andes to begin the conquest of what is now known as the province of Mendoza in the Argentine Republic. Fancying that he had practically completed the subjection of Chile, Valdivia sent a messenger to Spain to sue for the title of Marquis and a perpetual governorship, and fitted out an exploring expedition to the Straits of Magellan in the vain hope of opening up direct sea communication with the mother country. The Araucanians had, however, not relaxed their determination to rid themselves of the white invaders. News came that the Confederacy had put up an army of 10,000 men in the field, and that the outlying forts had been stormed. Valdivia at once advanced from Concepcion at the head of his forces, numbering 200 Spaniards and 500 Indian auxiliaries. A hundred miles south of the city he came in sight of the Araucanian army. For some time the Indian commander maneuvered cautiously, endeavoring to draw the Spaniards into a position where he could charge without suffering too much from the dreaded artillery. Finally battle was joined, and despite the destructive fire, the Indians managed to come to close quarters. As soon as these fierce warriors reached the enemy's line, all was up with the invaders. The Spanish army was literally annihilated. Valdivia himself fled, but was pursued and quickly captured. Brought before the Indian general, he begged for his life, agreeing to quit Chile with all the Spaniards, but his protestations were cut short by the war-club of an old chief standing near. The Spanish settlers south of Concepcion fled for refuge to the ports of Imperial and Valdivia, abandoning the other towns and forts. A young chief named Lautaro, who had been captured and baptized years before by Valdivia, but who had escaped to his own people, led a considerable army to the Biobio, destroyed an expedition sent against him, and drove the enemy out of Concepcion. If the Indians had understood the art of besieging fortified places, Imperial and Valdivia, and probably Santiago itself, would now have fallen, and the Spaniards would have been expelled from the southern and better half of Chile. Lautaro led north two thousand Araucanians, ravaged the lands of the Promaucians beyond the Maule, and penetrated to the neighborhood of the capital. Repeated expeditions sent against him were defeated. The dismayed Spaniards urgently called for help from Peru, and recalled the adventurers from Argentina. Happily, the civilized tribes of northern and central Chile remained faithful, and the bulk of the Araucanian forces was occupied besieging Valdivia and Imperial, a fruitless undertaking so long as provisions could be thrown in by sea. Worst of all for the Indians, smallpox broke out among them. At last the Spaniards surprised Lautaro's encampment near Santiago. The Araucanian leader fell dead, pierced by a dart and his companions fought like wild beasts until every man was slain. 
This victory secured the safety of Santiago, and the Araucanians retired behind the Biobio. Meanwhile, Mendoza, the great pacificator and organizer, had come out to Lima and assumed the viceroyalty. Turbulent adventurers swarmed into Peru, whom he thought could be better employed elsewhere. Southern Chile seemed just the place for these reckless, needy cavaliers, who were so anxious to carve out fiefs for themselves. Early in 1557, García de Mendoza, son of the viceroy, was appointed captain-general and enjoined to reduce the Araucanians to obedience. He came accompanied by ten ships and a considerable force of Spaniards. Still larger forces were on their way overland from Peru. Cautiously landing troops and artillery at the deserted city of Concepcion, he had finished his defences before the Confederacy could mobilise its army. Though the Araucanians attacked with desperate fury, their charges were beaten back by the artillery fire. Reforming on the other side of the Biobio, the Indians waited until Mendoza, who had meanwhile received a large reinforcement of cavalry, advanced. In the battle which followed they were defeated, but they had learned a lesson of prudence, and they fought in front of forests, into whose depths the Spanish cavalry could not pursue. Retreating slowly, they again gave battle, and though again defeated, inflicted great losses on the Spanish infantry. Mendoza hanged his prisoners, and once more advanced, this time to the place where Valdivia had met his death. Here he founded a fortified town, naming it Cañete, after the hereditary title of his family. Leaving it heavily garrisoned, he went on to Imperial for provisions. In his absence, the Indians unsuccessfully tried to carry Cañete by assault, and seeing the hopelessness of aggressive movements, they withdrew to the wooded districts and mountains, abandoning the open country and the sea-coasts to the Spaniards. Mendoza pushed on beyond the southern limits of the Araucanian territory, and discovered and explored the populous archipelago of Chiloe. On his way back he found it, on the mainland a hundred miles south of Valdivia, the city of Osorno. The Araucanians were now shut in between the Andes and a semicircle of towns and forts. It seemed as if their final subjection would only be a question of time. Mendoza returned to Santiago, leaving a lieutenant to undertake a campaign of rides and surprises. A few of the Araucanians remained in the field, and it was not until their veteran chief, Caupolican, was betrayed and pitilessly shot to death with arrows that the whole confederacy again flew to arms under the command of his son. Marching on Concepcion, the Indians cut to pieces first one Spanish force of five hundred men and then another, and blockaded the city from the land side. The Spaniards, holding the sea, had no difficulty in pouring in reinforcements from Peru and Valparaiso, and the Indian army finally retreated. At Quipago, between Concepcion and Cañete, it was defeated and nearly annihilated, its most celebrated chiefs and heroes perishing in the slaughter. Once more the Araucanians retired to their forests and mountains, while the Spaniards rebuilt and improved the line of fortifications and took possession of the valuable gold mines of Villarica. But they could make no further impression on these indomitable Indians. For forty years the war continued, sometimes active, sometimes desultory, and with constantly varying fortunes. 
Year after year the Spaniards poured in reinforcements, and their expeditions more than once ravaged the remotest parts of the Araucanian territory. But as soon as the armies retired, the unflagging Indians would return to the attack, cutting off isolated bands of settlers and surprising forts and towns. About 1593, the able chieftain Payamachu was toki of the Confederacy. The incessant wars against the Araucanians had made the province such a continual drain on the Peruvian treasury that Mendoza, who had been promoted to the viceregal throne, determined to end this impossible situation in one way or another. A general was sent to Chile with full powers either to treat or fight but the haughty and intractable Indians rejected with scorn his overtures for peace. He then fortified the line of the Biobio and erected new fortresses to serve as bases for a campaign of extermination to be undertaken as soon as reinforcements arrived. These came slowly, and the Indians themselves took the offensive, considerable bands invading the Spanish settlements, storming some forts and blockading others. The Spanish general exerted himself to concentrate his scattered forces, but while making a hasty journey, accompanied only by a small escort from Imperial towards Concepcion, he was surprised and killed by a band of Indians. Forty-eight hours later, not only the whole of Araucania, but also the provinces south of Valdivia rose in arms. All the Spanish towns south of Biobio, Osorno, Valdivia, Villarica, Imperial, Cañete, Angol, Coya, and Arauco were simultaneously besieged. Payamachu crossed the river and burned first Concepcion and then Chillán, a town a hundred miles north of the Araucanian boundary, ravaging the country to the river Maule. Alarmed for the safety of Santiago, the Lima viceroy sent a new governor with a well-equipped army, but it was as much as he could do to force the Indians back into their own territory. The Indian general suddenly assaulted the city of Valdivia, carried it by storm, slaughtered or captured the inhabitants, and seized two millions of booty, with many arms and cannon. Villarica and Imperial managed to hold out for three years, but finally they, with Osorno, were reduced by starvation. When Payamachu died in 1603, the Spaniards had no foothold on the mainland south of the Biobio except the Valdivia citadel. Two or three years later, the government made a last effort to reduce the Araucanians. An army of 3,000 Spaniards, besides a large contingent of natives, advanced across the Biobio. To such an overwhelming force, the Araucanians dared not offer open battle, but they hang on its flanks, skirmishing and harassing, and the host was compelled to return without having accomplished anything decisive. From the protection of the forts on the Biobio, the Spanish general sent expeditions to lay waste the Indian country, but these smaller bodies were roughly handled, and the first period of Araucanian wars closed with the nearly complete destruction of the Spanish forces operating in southern Chile. The authorities at Lima and Madrid gave it up as a bad job. Thenceforward, the Biobio remained the southern boundary of the Spanish possessions. An army of two thousand men and a line of forts guarded the frontier, and though hostilities were frequent, for centuries no real progress was made toward depriving the Araucanians of their independence. In the progress of time, the slow infiltration of Spanish blood and Spanish customs modified their characteristics, 
but it was not until 1882 that they became real subjects of the Chilian Government. End of section 8